0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is presented by the Brooklyn Kitchen. Learn more at brooklynkitchen.com.
2: Borders seem to be all over the news lately. You've got trade wars, Brexit, and of course, Trump's wall. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring how borders are created and blurred in the world of food. We try to focus a lot on the fact that they are chefs by nature, uh, that the refugee thing is just a status for them.
3: And after the Soviet space ended, I don't think there was much research. It was all considered just Soviet food or Russian food.
4: And I don't think it gives a lot of those cultures credit.
2: Tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network. That's meet plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available
4: wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview an extraordinary person on their road to success, and today, my guest is someone who is experiencing her year of yes. This is after having grown up in New Orleans as the daughter of Vietnamese immigrants and very recently competing on Top Chef. Nini Huen, so happy to see you here. Hi, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> so you grew up in New Orleans, but your life was really set off course by Hurricane Katrina, yeah. along with many, many other people. I, I wonder if you could take me back to that moment of Hurricane Katrina and what, what was it what was it like having that hurricane boring down on your mm life, your choices, and your family?
2: So, growing up in New Orleans, every year you pretty much evacuate at least once. And for our family, we always went to Houston, because there's a lot of food, Vietnamese people, and we would just go shopping. And But this time we knew something was different and we went, but we didn't shop very much because we were like, we didn't know what would happen. What kind of shopper are we talking about? Like, you know, Gucci handbags or? Um, We would go to the Galleria mall and like shop for clothes, shop for food because there's always like so many different exotic things you could buy in, in Houston. Um, and so, yeah, we, we weren't shopping that much and my mom, I could tell she was like really worried. I was, um, 18, 19 at the time and we learned that we couldn't get back in. We were in Texas for about a week and we had to figure out like, well, if we can't go home, where are we going to stay? Cause we can't stay in these hotels. Like everything was so booked. We were lucky to get a room. And so we went to Baton Rouge where my brother has, a um, my my dad has a sister, my aunt. And so we stayed with them for a little bit until we could get in. But um, our the damage in, in New Orleans East was very minimum. There was about two inches of water in our home. But because they didn't let us back in for a month, until a month later, the molds and everything had
3: grown. So How terrible. Yeah. And you feel like if you had gotten back earlier, actually, you could have... Moved in, cleaned up. Yeah. So what happened to your house?
2: Um, So it had to get gutted. My parents ended up selling. And then my parents, at that point, they were tired of evacuating every year. So they
3: decided to move to Baton Rouge. And so you join you joined them, but you left school because mm-hmm. you were going to school then. And, and I feel like that's the piece that really set you off course, right? Yeah.
2: So I um, I went to UNO for my first year. And then my second year... So I
3: imagine that's University of New Orleans?
2: Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and, um, and for my second year, it was the first week of school that Katrina happened. And so then um, all of the dis- displaced students... Um, could go to any other university and when I was in Baton Rouge I went to LSU Louisiana State University and that's and I needed to figure out like I need a job I can't just not work my parents are trying to find a place to to live we can't live with my aunt forever
3: and so then I got it it did it out savings the I mean in losing Mm -hmm. the house or selling the house um because you ended up working to help pay for your lifestyle and your yeah. parents' lifestyle.
2: Yeah. Um, my parents, my dad was working, but then when Katrina happened, he didn't have a job. So then he's trying to, everyone's trying to find work. My mom at least, um, had a, had her, she is a manicurist. And, um, and so then she still had all of her clients. And so we're all just trying to figure out how to just make it happen. And I started. Um, I was a host at a sushi restaurant. That was my very first uh, restaurant job, and I went to school. And so then we we were just doing day by day, trying to figure it out. And I grew to love the restaurant industry.
3: So, what about was it something about hostessing or the
2: camaraderie? The camaraderie, the culture. I think also, like, the sense of humor people had in the restaurant world. Tell me about
3: that. Like, where's the sense of humor? <laughs>
2: um, I guess the people that I worked with, it was just, it was funny. Like, we would have regulars, and it would be like, oh, that person wants this thing again. And it was just, I just loved it, um, the vibe. And it didn't dawn to me, like, that I wanted
3: to be a chef then. It took a, a couple of years. And so when did that first idea dawn on you?
2: Um, I actually went to a pastry shop in New Orleans. I We visited because we were only an hour away and we still had family in New Orleans. And so I visited a pastry shop called Sucre and I was like, this is what I want to do. Like, I was in business marketing and I loved it but I didn't see anything viable to happen and I graduated in 2009 so it was after 2008 no one I knew could get a job that was better than me serving tables (laughs) and so and so I was like well if I can't really make money with the degree that I'm that I have right now, then I'm gonna do what I love. And I've always enjoyed cooking.
3: So do you remember the first thing that you made? But sometimes those are really funny dishes.
2: Um, I actually, yes. <laughs> I remember I watched Food Network, and it was Emeril. Emeril Lagasse was really big when I was little, and I made a stuffed shrimp um, with whatever we had at home, and. I like we pres- my brother and I presented it to my parents and my dad loved it. <gasps> and so then I was like this was the first thing I was like I made something good because I've made a lot of d- horrible things after that. But that was my <laughs> first thing that I remember making that was like completely different from what we've eaten at home that my parents loved.
3: <laughs> and Vietnamese um, food is very important to the food that you cook today. Mm-hmm. Did you grow up with a mom who cooked and did you mm-hmm. make Vietnamese food? with her Mm -hmm. under her supervision
2: um actually my mom worked a lot so my grandmother took care of us as um you know after school and stuff like that and so um she cooked a lot so we always had a Vietnamese meal like I didn't know American food until I started really going to school um we ate a Vietnamese meal every day and on Saturdays my grandmother would um take me to the farmer's market and this is like before farmer's markets were cool it's like super unregulated like there's just ice on the ground and fish on top of it (laughs) (laughs) and um and we would go shopping for whatever dish we were going to make that day and it was like the dish that we'd make for the weekend so then the whole family the extended family will come on sunday and we could make, like, steam buns or um, steamed rice crepes. And she would always say that I made it even though I was, like, four. <laughs> and um, That's but, a
3: nice way to give you some credit. Yeah,
2: and so uh, I think that positive reinforcement
3: went a long way. <laughs> so, yeah, you have a couple of positive reinforcement there, right, between your dad being like, this is awesome, <laughs> and your grandma being like, she cooked it. Yeah. Like, I'm going to be a professional chef. Yeah. Uh, but the the work that you ended up doing as a – professional chef that's really hard work like did did you um have professional training or you went to Sucre and then that that you got trained there
2: um so I was inspired by Sucre I finished my degree um and that was more for a nod for my family like I'm gonna finish school like you want me to like typical Asian family (laughs) and um and then I enrolled in culinary school in New Orleans but I didn't finish I, f- I learned so much on the job because you had to work and go to school that I kind of felt like I didn't necessarily need the culinary school because I wanted to learn such spe- specific things. And so um, I trained a little bit, but I think I was just wise um, about the chefs I wanted to work for.
3: And so do you recommend culinary school as a general proposition or would you say just go work for some great chef? Like. <laughs> I um, I
2: know, it's like so bad, but I think that if you really want to cook, go work for, like if you, there's a chef that inspires you, show up and say, I'll work for free, I'll just work for a day, let me do, let me cut these onions, and um, and see if you really like it first, because culinary school can get really expensive, and if you don't love it, you're going to be in debt, and you don't really make that much money when you go out, so it's a big commitment.
3: It's a hu- it's a huge commitment. Yeah. But you also were teaching at a culinary school here, cook mm-hmm. space, which is a really very different thing. So on the one hand, you're like, oh, don't you know, professional culinary school, maybe not. But for home cooks, you probably mm-hmm. have a different point of view. Yeah, I
2: think that um, I think right now I think a lot of people are very interested in learning how to cook, especially with all of the um, like blue aprons. In the world,
3: and so. Do you think that actually makes people want to cook more, or do you think that it's a shortcut and they'll get bored, and then they'll stop cooking and just order in?
2: I think that they want to cook, but they might not know how. So then, having something that is step by step is easy and more
3: approachable. What do you find? um, What do you find? Most people did want to cook at um, Cookspace because you were teaching some Mm -hmm. Vietnamese classes, Mm -hmm. Um, but. But was there anything you were surprised by? Like, I can't believe that people want to make steamed buns. Like, who wants to make that dough? Like, was yeah. there anything <laughs> along those lines where you were really surprised?
2: Um, both, on both spectrums. A lot of the, like, ethnic cuisines is sells a lot. Um, but then also knife skills. You would be so surprised. Because, um, you know, as a chef, you don't really think about that. But a lot of people, it's the game changer um, class. You know, when you think... You know, you don't really need a peeler if you have a paring knife. And so it's, it, I never knew how much people love that class. And some people will take it twice just in case if they might learn something. Uh, but at Cookspace, we do um, what we call the culinary confidence series, where it's like five to ten classes and you show up once a week with the same group of people and you learn fundamental skills. I really don't teach recipes. Um... I think that everyone has their own taste buds and they can determine whether they want it to be spicier, sour, you know, sweeter. And so I want to teach people how to cook for themselves first. And then...
3: I don't know. Some people have zero confidence in their taste buds. So that could be very intimidating. <laughs> yeah. I will say that before I was the editor-in-chief of, of Food & Wine, I was there as the um, executive editor. And as a executive editor, I, I went to Peter Combs cooking school, which is now um, ICE. And... I took a knife skills class and that is the only class that I've ever taken and I didn't cook before uh, food and wine and, you know, during food and wine I didn't have a lot of time to cook and then I wrote this book about all the horrible mistakes I made but that one class with the the knife skills I was sort of like under, you know, undercover I would go in and people would say what what do you do? And I'm like, oh, you know, just (laughs) I work at a food magazine but it was really great because I did learn how to um, how to use a knife, and I like a really big knife. I hate pairing knives, and I, like anything that's just big. I feel I have a lot more control with a big knife than I do with a small knife. I don't know why. Is yeah. there a reason that that would be logical? Um, I like to think
2: that I like bigger knives as well. Um, I don't know, but I whenever I teach people how to cut things, I'm like, just don't use that little inch that you always use. Like, use your whole knife. You you paid for this much, <laughs> use it. And so that's what I th- I'm like. You have more surface area. You don't have to wiggle so much, like
3: that. So, um, so then from um, you were working at Sukra, and then you you came to New York, and you were cooking in New York, mm-hmm. right, with an extraordinary chef because you're working with Angela Pinkerton.
2: Yes. How did
3: you end up in that kitchen?
2: Um, I when I moved here, I. Was a pastry chef, and apparently there was a shortage because everywhere, <laughs> everywhere I staged, they're like, "We would, we would love to have you." And oh, are you sure it
3: wasn't because you were brilliant? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you're brilliant. <laughs>
2: um, but I, it was, it was an amazing experience to stage at the places that I did. So um, where did you stage? I staged at Danielle, La Bernardin, um Eleven Madison Park. I really liked even um, Gotham Bar and Grill, and I was of course, coming from the outside world, going into New York, you're looking for at all of these Michelin starred restaurants. And you're just like, do I have what it takes to hang with all of these chefs? And
3: apparently they thought so. so. And did that affect you in any way? Like, did it make you work harder or like, you know, come in earlier or go home and practice more? Like, yeah, that thought in your head, like, am I good enough? Am I good enough? Like, how did you shut that up? Um,
2: I just had to, I don't know, I was working so much that it's just I'm like
3: I have to make this and I can prove to them that I can do all of this um is there anything else in your life before that that you worked as hard at as you ended up working in the kitchen
2: um I wish I could say yes but that was a tough kitchen to adapt it was it was just a different culture coming from New Orleans where everyone's like so laid back and we're like oh we love to party down here to going to New York and it's like rigid it's like this is how we do it professionally. So I would say that adjust adjustment about six months was probably the hardest time. It was just uh, it was I was homesick, and it was a tough kitchen, but it made me so much better and stronger.
3: Yeah. And what do you feel like you learned there? Um,
2: I I like to say like they taught me techniques, but I knew a lot of those techniques before coming in. I think that working at EMP. It love Madison
3: Park yeah. under Angela
2: yeah uh, it really taught me how to be a good chef to be outspoken to speak up and be accountable for the things that happened
3: and um, and that's just like that was a life changer I think that do you think being outspoken because that's a different that's a different word mm-hmm. than being articulate yeah I mean being outspoken means you want to you know be heard above the rest mm-hmm. and differentiate yourself like is that was that the key to it
2: I think so. I think um, speaking up and like being able to... They really cultivate a culture where you should speak up. If you think something could be better, say it. Because it doesn't hurt. It'll only make us better. And it's hard when a lot of times you work in competitive kitchens um, or just kitchens where there's definitely one chef and they don't want to hear anything and they're not open to um, feedback... Uh, but that was not the culture there. It was. It was an amazing experience. If any chefs want to work, I
3: think like you should work with kitchens like that. And did you find it hard to find your voice? You know, did you know what you or did you know what you wanted to say so it was easy to say it? Or like, how did how did that work out? Um,
2: I. It was hard in the beginning because I'm so shy. I'm like, what if I say something wrong? Um, but. Um, they, they don't make it that way. I think that it's almost like it's worse if you don't say one thing that could be improved. You know, a lot of the manager meetings, you have to bring in something that you think that should be improved, or it's like, you're not even looking. And so it's, that's just the culture that they cultivate. And, um, and that has really stuck with me. And I think that me being, (laughs) I always blame it on being a Capricorn, but I am very like, I'm going to stubborn. tell you the truth. Stubborn, <laughs> truthful, and um, but only when I care about you. Um, and so I, I feel like
3: I embrace that. It, it was, it's crazy, but it's really cool. This idea of sp- speaking the truth—that's mm-hmm. the—that's the Capricorn <laughs> part. I'm married yeah. to a Capricorn, yeah. um, so I love Capricorns because they're extremely steady. Um, it's really hard to destabilize them not that I try to destabilize my husband I love him <laughs> um but I love his his um you know steadiness and the stubbornness maybe a little bit less so are you stubborn <laughs> I am um,
2: I I would like to think that I'm not but I I am
3: I know I am <laughs> and where does that come from um aside from Capricorn I course.
2: know I I think that um I know I pick my battles I, I, you know, I'm, I'm usually very flexible, but if there's something that I'm like, I like it this way and I want it this way, I'm gonna say it and, and if it's something that I have the power over, then,
3: then that's gonna be the way it is. And um, so you found your way to Top Chef, but that moment was um, a very challenging moment because you, were, um, you auditioned for the show At the same time that you found out that your brother, who, how much, he was older than you. He was
2: younger. He was younger than you. Yeah,
3: Your brother, who's younger than you, had um, terminal cancer. Yeah. So when we come back, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to hear about this incredibly hard choice and um, her amazing brother. Um, So stay with us to hear more about Top Chef, all of you Top Chef fans. (laughs) And uh, we'll be right back.
1: This episode is presented by the Brooklyn Kitchen, a recreational cooking school on a mission to change the world by teaching people how to cook like grown ups. The Brooklyn Kitchen began in 2006 when two creative home chefs, Taylor Erkinen and Harry Rosenblum, recognized an opportunity to create a community space with approachable, hands on cooking classes and inventive culinary experiences. Taylor and Harry believe that cooking is a daily practice in creative problem solving. They bring this ethos to the Brooklyn Kitchen, a cooking school that fosters community and redefines home cooking for everyone. Now located at Sunset Park's Industry City, the Brooklyn Kitchen hosts a range of public and private cooking classes, corporate team parties, pop-up dinners, and tasting events for cooks of all levels. Learn more at thebrooklynkitchen.com.
0: Are
4: you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Jenna Liute and I'm the host of Eating Matters here on HRN. Join me as I talk to food systems experts about the issues that shape our experiences of buying, cooking, and eating food. You can find Eating Matters wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org.
3: Welcome back. This is Dana Cowan and you are listening to Speaking Broadly. My guest this episode is Nini Dwin and we're talking about like a tough subject um, but one that I imagine you've come to terms with over time. So tell me about when Top Chef first came calling.
2: Um, so I had applied many years before and- How does one apply? You. Someone threw my name in the bag, and a producer talked to me. And you have to like have a video, pictures, food, and you have to like Skype it, interview. So it's a it's a process. And um, that year was a no. And then then they called me again, and they were very interested. And at that time. It was probably, like, February, and I was just in the middle. Like, in January, I found out that my brother was terminally ill, and I kind of just dropped everything I was doing here in New York to go home to help my family and, and him, because he's, like, my best friend. We're about a year and a half apart, so and we both cook. And so it was just so... And he was yeah. a chef. Mm-hmm. Where, did, where was he cooking? He was cooking at Bourne in New Orleans for... Um, it was part of the Besh group, but I know, whole nother thing. Yeah, we'll, we'll leave that aside for <laughs> yeah, this conversation. Yeah.
3: yeah. Um, and how did he find out that he uh, had cancer? We uh, he was having
2: back pains and. Um, and he's 27 years old, so you wouldn't think, you know, it would be cancer. You're like, oh, you just have, like, muscle spasms, you're working out. Or, or for a chef. I mean, you're lifting yeah. too many heavy pots. Like, just don't do that. Exactly. And um, and then just so happened, um, a student who was working with, with the doctor at the time was like, let's take an x-ray just to, just to see. And then that's when they found um, lesions on his spine and then... They did like the full MRI CAT scan and it was in seven different places. Yeah.
3: And he hadn't felt any of it except the back.
2: Yeah. And it started in the stomach and you wouldn't think anything because like he didn't have any like weight fluctuation or anything like that. So it was um, no symptoms, no signs. And then and then at that point, like it was like two months before it took him. And they
3: told you, I mean, they said, look, it's all, it's throughout his body. This is going to be fast.
2: Yeah. Like, it was hard for us because we were like, he's young. We're going to fight. You know, you can't lose hope until you have to face reality. And so um, they laid things out on the table, and we're just like, we're going to try to fight it. It's like, it's worth a shot. And then, um, and then when the time came, it's like, okay, like, we're going to have to make peace with this. And, and yeah. Um, top chef called (laughs) and you said, no, and I said, no, I I was not going to, I could never have that time back. So I said, no, I
3: hope, you know, maybe sometime in the future, but I'm, I can't do it right now. And did you feel in any way that, uh, stomach cancer was just so unfair because, (laughs) you know, he fed people and he fed their stomachs and then it was stomach cancer that took him down?
2: Yeah. Um, yeah yeah definitely it was it it's hard because you know cancer is an awful thing and it is unfair to everyone like the family the friends I I definitely feel felt like I was like being robbed (laughs) but um but I'm thankful like you're thankful for the time you spend and the time that you have sorry (laughs) but um I should have brought tissues. No, i brought tissue-less. <laughs> yeah. But, always oh, it's fine. It Thank fine. you. And um, so you have to be thankful for what you have. And I'm so thankful that I had my brother. And we had shared a passion. And if it wasn't like he wanted me to leave so bad, he was like, you have to go. This is your chance. And I said, I'm not. There's no way I'm going. Um And... So I promised him, I was like, if they ever call again, and I'm mentally okay, <laughs> <laughs> I will do it. And so um, they called again the next year, and I said no, because I was just not ready. Um, and it had only been a year, and there was, you know, therapy, everything, like everything, I couldn't do it. I knew I couldn't. And then last year they called again, and um, I, I was working at cook space a building like this culinary school I was really excited about and I think um I finally kind of overcome that like horrible thing that happened to me
3: and um I mean not probably not that one ever really yeah overcomes know. that but yeah did you feel in any way like it's great to be there cooking and he really wanted you to but you just wished he could see that yeah
2: there were moments on Top Chef. Actually, the first win, um, I, I, um, I should have been happy. I was like, "Oh my God, I just won!" I literally thought I was going to be eliminated on the second <laughs> episode, and then they're like, "Nini, you won!" and I was like, "What?" But then I was so happy, and but there was always like a piece of sadness in me. And I remember weeping in the bathroom where the cameras didn't weren't there. And then I won again. <laughs> I won the third episode. And then I just lost it. I cried. It, we had the women hung out on one side of the house, like our rooms, and then the men on the other side. So we called it the woman's wing, <laughs> where they had vanities, which was so perfect for us. <laughs> and so I was in the the um, vanity room, and I just started crying, and then all of us kind of hugged and kind of talked about the people we've lost in our life, and and it was it was so nice to like kind of let that go and like be okay with that, and uh, and know that
3: all the other contestants have you know everyone has their things, and um, I just think a, a a brother so close in age and so aligned with what you what your passion is. I mean. Did you cook together as kids? Was he with your grandma too, and yes. going to the market? So it's not just you; it was the it was the two of you.
2: Yeah, we um we definitely cooked a lot. Uh, we loved watching Iron Chef, and so then I'm like, let's play Iron Chef, but he would hate it because he would always be the sous chef, and he's like, I don't <laughs> want to clean. <laughs> is that is that your bossy Capricorn thing, or your yes. older
3: sister, or I've, all?
2: Uh, I think it was like me being bossy, or me being like, "Well, if you do this, and I'll do this," and I would always have like the better deal, <laughs> <laughs> at a better end of the deal. But um, but we cooked a lot, and we were very like we would experiment, and it was it was so much fun. Food was always a thing. We go grocery shopping with their mom every week, and it was just something that we just did as a family. And um, and so yeah, it was hard because I
3: was so close to him and. We shared so many things in common, and um, it's really yeah. like losing a piece of yourself. I mean, losing yeah. a piece of your family is one, of course, horrible. But yeah. uh, I'm wondering what role food played when he was ill. You know, was yeah. he able to eat, or was he all uh, tube bound? Yeah,
2: um, he did eat. Like, I remember one time he took a medicine and it lost. He lost his taste buds for a second, and he freaked out. But then it came back. <laughs> Um, and I my way of like through this stressful time was to cook and so I would cook for him and he loved this uh, rice porridge dish that we usually make when people are sick and it, it's with chicken and ginger it's like Chinese congee but I think it's better but it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and so I would make that like once a week for him and he would love fried chicken and then and at that point I was like, I'm going to just get you all of the things you love to eat in the city. So I would just go and get, like, gnocchi or pizza or Rubens,
3: like, everything. Anything he wanted, I got. <laughs> wow. So, um, and where did you get them? I'm sure you were very particular about where you got them from, right? Yeah. Like, where's the perfect gnocchi? Where's the perfect pizza? Where's the perfect fried chicken? I'd love yeah. to know that, like, that New Orleans list. Um,
2: so gnocchi, we would always get it from Inquora. Um, pizza, if you like, like, New York style, pizza, delicious, but then Ancora also has, like, great Neapolitan style. Um, Rubens or any, um, sandwiches that are, like, Jewish-centric, I guess. Stein's Deli, it's probably my favorite, even out of New York. People are gonna, like, kill me over here. <laughs> um, but it's so delicious. And, um, I'm like, what else? Oh, fried chicken, strangely enough, Popeye's.
3: There Actually, there are a lot of people who love Popeyes. Yeah. Huh. It's a good thing. Is we, that your fried chicken every, anywhere? Ca- Favorite fried chicken anywhere? Yeah, I
2: think so. It depends, I guess. Like, unless I'm in... Yeah, no, I, I love pa- Popeyes. But I think Popeyes in Louisiana tastes different. I think it's spicier.
3: That could be true. Yeah, uh, well, who knows? And your, were you feeding your parents as well?
2: Yeah. My parents, um, they would... They would still try to work at least, but then we would always grab something to go or something, and we would have dinner in the room with him. Yeah.
3: And uh, so, in competing for Top Chef and knowing you were sort of doing it for him, uh, you got eliminated. Mm-hmm. You made a good stab at it, though, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and you did win. You know, you you won a, a couple of um, you won a couple of times. Did that create any emotion around your brother? You know, because you were doing this for him and you wanted to win for him? Yeah.
2: I think, for one, like, getting on was already, like, a big accomplishment because I was like, what if they don't want... I even told the casting producer, I was like, this is the last time. I'm not doing it again. It's now or never. And I think that's when they were like, oh, she's kind of crazy, so let's cast her. (laughs) Um, And I... um, Winning felt amazing and I it was like one more for my brother and then when I got eliminated it was tough but then I was still proud like I think that you know at least when I was on I was on fire and even though I left um sooner and didn't win I think that my brother would have been proud of me I think he would have
3: been right thrills you yeah. did it he told you to do it and yeah, he did <laughs> I did I was- and there's, I'm sure there's obstacles. I mean, you know, you could get a casting call that's not the same as being cast. Yeah. And so that is pretty great. And your parents originally had been somewhat reluctant to see you go from, you know, business school or mm-hmm. business direction into cooking, yeah. as you're saying, that that Asian background. <laughs> exactly. But they have also, they've come around.
2: Yes. My parents are so supportive. My dad is kind of a dreamer type, and so he was always secretly supportive. As soon as I said I wanted to be a chef, he bought me a KitchenAid, he bought me knives, like he bought me all of like... My that's not so be- secret. Exactly. <laughs> and my mom's like, you know, it's not too late. You could always go to medical school. <laughs> and I'm like, Mom, I. you did not see my grades in college. <laughs> 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 and, um, and so I... My pa- my dad was really supportive. My mom, she knew she knows who I am, and she's like, "You're gonna do what you want to do." And so when I so told her I was going to New York, she's like, "You're crazy." <laughs> she's like, "It's so dangerous there." And I'm like, "No, we're in New Orleans where the crime is very high," and so I'm like, "I will be safer there. I promise." And um
3: and she cried, of course, and she said, "Okay," and um and still. Well, it also must have been hard with and now that your your brother's gone mm-hmm. and for you to be in New York.
2: Yeah. It's she's like are you ready to have kids? I'm ready to be a grandma and you can bring them you can move home and have kids so I'll watch them. And I'm like I'll think about it. I mean it's it's every day it gets more attractive to like move back home, but we'll see. Wait, that's so interesting. Does it actually get more attractive to move back home? Yeah, um the cost of living in New Orleans is a lot lower. Um, people love food and in an ideal world I would love to have something kind of like cook space in New Orleans or do something with ceramics I also make ceramics
3: I want to hear about that you have it's <laughs> called the baker's clay yes and what type of ceramics do you make um I like to
2: make um, like tableware tableware and sometimes like little or like ornament type things but I love tableware and I have uh, like deep fascination for sea creatures, so sometimes you'll see um, sea creature
3: themed things on my table. Does that mean that you don't like to cook fish because you love them so much?
2: No, I love <laughs>
3: seafood. <laughs> you
2: can't live, you can't be
3: from the Gulf and not love seafood. But I think they're also beautiful. And um, so we said at the beginning that this is your year of yes, mm-hmm. and I'm curious about that because um, the year of yes can bring all kinds of things into the net. <laughs> Why did you decide it's the, your year of yes? Um,
2: so I did top chef and and it's aired and now I cook space is in such a great place where I don't have to be there all the time. I teach a class maybe once a month now and so I've opened myself up to be able to explore and see what opportunities there there is. For me, and um, and the only way is if I say yes. I'm usually a no
3: person. <laughs> and what do you say no to? Like if you're a no person generally, yeah,
2: everyone's like, "You should do this. You should do that," or like, "Let's do this." And I'm like, I like to be realistic. I really love my time, and who I spend my time with, and and I it like it's very sacred to me and so then if I feel like something isn't worth my time I'm going to say no and so then it's usually no for most things but now I'm I've changed my like train of thought and I'm like this is my yes year and everything's gonna be worth my time something has value in like so I'm just gonna do whatever
3: I think it's great to prize your time I really it's A very hard lesson to learn and to assess, like, do I care enough to give this my time? Um, But you sound like a very tough critic if most things don't (laughs) pass the I want to spend my time on this test. Is that because you like actually being alone? Um,
2: I think, one, I'm usually I like to keep myself busy. If there was anything, if I had any downtime, I want to use it on ceramics and so it's like if I do this and it takes away from something that I love to do with my free time that I find very rewarding so is that a, is that's usually the scale and so um in the many years before I was like nope ceramics reigns supreme and um and but now I've taken a break from ceramics to do like all of this and I was working so much and so now it's my yes year. So everybody take advantage of it. Because <laughs> <laughs> she's going to say yes.
3: All <laughs> you listen, let's say that that could bring you some very very to very interesting places, I think. Yeah. Um I I do think that the year of yes is often followed by a year of no because yeah. then you you realize you said yes to all these things and some of them turn out to be valuable um but you don't know before you say yes. Yeah. So So you better go before the store (laughs) is (laughs) closed. The sale is on. And, um, what are you most looking forward to? Like, do, do you have plans throughout this year of yes?
2: Um, I am traveling. I'm going to Asia. I'm taking my boyfriend to Vietnam. Um, and I've been once, only once before, but I spent like a month, about five weeks there. And, um, so I'm excited to show him that. But, um, The summer, I it's pretty open, (laughs) but uh, it's strange because things will book up
3: in spurts, and so, and I've had that experience myself. Like I, I I try to, I struggle with open time because I like being busy, but I also want that white space. So it's a Mm. constant struggle for me. But I know that um, you know, often just one month out, I'm like, oh my gosh, May is going to be so amazing because I have so much white space, so much time Mm. to think and you know work on these projects of my own and then two weeks ahead it's like how did the entire month fill up so I so the idea that you don't have anything quite planned for um for the summer that's today yeah like in two weeks I'm sure we'd be having a very yeah a, a very different conversation is there anything about um the way in which uh you know your your brother's passing and Katrina and um sort of the impermanence has affected you for the year of yes I think that
2: like Katrina was hard and I think I was young and I I, I didn't a lot of people are like that's such a devastating thing and I was like actually yes it was but then it it's like you have to deal with it is there's nothing to change and it pivoted my life to a whole nother way, like world. And so I'm kind of thankful for Katrina to happen. And then with my brother, it just taught me a lesson to cherish things a little bit more, um, to do all of the things like everything I do now is for him or like for both of us, you know, because he couldn't do it. I'm going to Japan and that's the place that he's always wanted to go. And so when I'm on that side of the world with Vietnam, I'm going to go to Japan as well. And so it's like, Everything I do is for us because he couldn't do it. And I guess, yeah, that's how it changed me.
3: <laughs> do you feel like he's still with you somewhere?
2: Yeah, definitely. I think I, anytime I'm scared or I'm nervous, I'm just like, he's not going to let me do, like nothing bad's going to happen to me. And then, I mean, it might be irrational to think that, but, but then it's comforting as well. And so I'm like, oh, it will calm me down. And,
3: and then I go and do my day. <laughs> So um, on the show, each time we always pay it forward to an extraordinary uh, woman who in the hospitality industry, who hasn't gotten enough attention. And I'm wondering if there's someone in the world who as you've navigated this universe, who you feel needs more attention? A light shined on them.
2: Yeah. I'm gonna say my old mentor, Angela Pinkerton, I think she is an incredible woman and she's taught me to be strong. Like I always feel like I was kind of strong, but she taught me to be stronger. And um how did she do that? I just by example. Just and what way in what way is she strong? Um she's also outspoken. And if she saw like I would say if something was um, I'm like, how do I word this? She's very firm. She can tell you what she wants, but in a way that you don't. You're not afraid of her. You know, you you respect her, and you're like, I want to do this because I I don't want to let you down. And she led a team that was just. I loved it. I I I really admire her, and I I feel like she's really created me to be the chef that I've always wanted to be. And. What
3: did she pull out in you that you weren't
2: even sure was there? I think um, because it's so hard to be in the intense world to be compassionate. If you know, understand that other people have anxieties, and it's still just food, and um, and be kind. Be kind to everyone. Yeah. And where is she now? She is at.
3: um, I'm like, I can't remember. FICO Chef FICO. Oh. Right, Kay Fr- Fico yeah, um in San Francisco,'s a fantastic restaurant that mm-hmm. she co-founded. Mm-hmm. and it's been a huge, a huge success, yeah. yeah, um well, thank you, Nini, for joining us today on speaking broadly. If people want to follow your adventures, where do they find you? Um, on social media? <laughs> yeah, so <I'm> like, what? <laughs> what?
2: <laughs> it's I dream of Nini. I dream of Period Nini on
3: Instagram. And actually I realized we, we didn't talk about your dinner lab time at all. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I bring it up because our great friend, um, Andrea Pinkard, uh, introduced us and that's actually how I know you. And that we skipped over an entire part of your life. (laughs) Was there any one lesson before I tell you where to find me on Instagram? Um, from dinner lab, From dinner lab,
2: that things might be overwhelming, but you can definitely make it happen. (laughs) Just make it happen.
3: (laughs) Yeah, you have a, a tremendous, that that Capricorn determination is coming through in every single job <laughs> yeah. that you've had. Um, and thank you all for listening. I'm so happy that you got to hear uh, Nini's story today. If you like what you hear, um, please subscribe on iTunes or anywhere else where podcasts are found. Uh, and you can DM me. You can follow me at Speaking Broadly. uh I love having you listen and just love hearing what you think. Have a really great week, and I'll be back next week.
4: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place.